0: One of the resources that encouraged my deep dive into listening is called You're Not Listening, What You're Missing and Why It Matters by journalist Kate Murphy. Her conversational tone in communicating deeply researched information makes it easy to listen to, so to speak. In chapter seven, Kate Murphy explains listening to views that oppose your own. She summarizes the chapter on page 88 this way. She says... To listen does not mean or even imply that you agree with someone. It simply means that you accept the legitimacy of the other person's point of view and that you might have something to learn from it. It also means that you embrace the possibility that there might be multiple truths and understanding them all might lead to a larger truth. Good listeners know understanding is not binary. It's not that you have it or you don't. Your understanding can always be improved. I love challenging my own beliefs, and by extension, helping students challenge their beliefs about the grey that lives between the black and white, the right and wrong, the yes and no. Inspired by the work of Ellen Lupton, as well as Nadine Shaheen, I've spoken with my students a lot this semester about the typographic non-binary, and the innovation possible when we take type out of their traditional classification buckets, discovering what happens when one spills into the other, into the other, into the other. All of a sudden, even a huge overarching fundamental category like serif or sans serif begin to feel outdated, unnecessary, and even a blockade to future innovative work in the space. I love hearing Kate Murphy use the framework to discuss the ways in which we think about listening, multiple truths made possible when we're open to opposing sides. Furthermore, organizational psychologist and author Adam Grant expands on this idea by explaining that the highest compliment from someone who disagrees with you is not, you were right. It's, you made me think. Good arguments help us recognize complexity where we once saw simplicity. The ultimate purpose of debate is not to produce consensus, it's to promote critical thinking. Both of these passages are particularly fitting in the case of today's guest, Jenna Beaton. Jenna is a Toronto-based family law litigator and a partner at Beaton-Burke Young. She and I discuss the patience and restraint often needed while listening as a lawyer, as well as the directive component to listening, controlling the conversation parameters, often required in the law. We explore the importance of asking the right questions, separating emotionality from the content and high-stakes listening, and the importance of asking why to question the status quo. Who is Jenna Beaton in a nutshell? Well, I am a extroverted
1: family law lawyer with hobbies that have nothing to do with family law. But I would say relate to listening in some way. I like to do things like home DIY stuff. Yes. And sports. But by and large, I am a very social creature who is interested in laughing almost all the time.
0: That is a very good place to live. I feel like <laughs> that is my favorite thing about you is just is your laugh. Oh,
1: wow. I'm working on it for years. It shows. thank you uh yeah no i am maybe at times not helpfully always in it for the laugh, and uh, (laughs) certainly a distraction but uh it just says you got to get the simple joys in life you know every day gotta have a bit
0: of it i hear you i totally hear you and i'm really curious in this conversation that we are about to embark on what does listening look like when you are a lawyer, and kind of what role does it play in your everyday interactions with all stakeholders, whoever that may be?
1: I think listening as a lawyer is a, I mean, no surprise. It is extremely important. It is how I gather a huge amount of my information, and I only operate on information that I have. Yeah, um, it's a lot of like, quiet listening. Like it's not interactive, I would say, because I'm trying to get a client to talk to me a lot of the time and tell me all the things that they're comfortable with. Sometimes it's reframing to someone, sort of making sure you understand them. But like, if I interject too much, then I really can't hear them. Uh, And also I'll overpower them (laughs) because I'm a fairly dominant person. So I would say it's a surprising amount of like, personal patience and restraint while i listen um i do think though that there is like a directive component of listening for me because like being a lawyer lawyers are expensive and people don't love spending money understandably and so i do try to spend a lot of time making sure that i am receiving the information that i need from people as opposed to all the information they want to give me because sometimes family lawyers are really seen as therapists so i do have to like control the conversation parameters i would say and so when we start to go out of bounds i will say we need to get back to the original question which understandably a lot of people lose focus of when we're in an emotional time which is typically what they are if they're talking to me i do think that like silence by me plays a surprisingly large role in listening because lots of people find silence hard and so they will just fill it with more information And so that's like an interesting strategy to get people to like tell you the things that you need to hear. It's just like waiting for them to keep going and then they'll find a natural end. Provided it's not wildly out of range of where we were going with the original question. Um, I will say that sometimes though, I I guess that's like what I perceive of as listening with the client. And, and there's obviously exceptions to that all the time. Everyone is different and people have different levels of like comfort about what they're sharing. I think there is also a second part of like listening as a family lawyer, which is like when you're engaging with another lawyer and we're trying to actually solve a dispute. A lot of lawyers have a tendency to enjoy mostly the sound of their own voice. I am no exception. Uh, but as a result, when you're engaging and like trying to figure out like what does the other person want, as lawyers, typically we should be trying to like, find out what the client's real goals are. And sometimes that certainly gets lost in family law world. But if you're not like listening to the other lawyer, but like what their client is doing, but like why they're doing it, you really miss like how to find the middle ground if there is one to be had. And so like that is an important part. That like I would say a lot of us stumble on unfortunately where people will be talking and they want to put their point and they want to advocate for their client and that's like not really the right way to go about trying to find an actual resolution. It was a very long-winded answer.
0: I missed the mark for you. You tell me. There's a whole bunch of things. I was trying to employ silence as a strategy there. <laughs> <laughs> it worked. I filled it. I didn't know what to do. Yes. Okay. So there, there's many things you said there. Um, one of which, and I'm just I didn't scribble it down, and now I forget what it was. <laughs> it had to do with, ah, the idea, and I had never kind of uh, put two and two together, but it's so interesting that oftentimes when you are listening from uh, to, to a client, because it's such a highly emotional situation and they're describing things in their personal life that is is uh, that are just inherently, um, challenging and emotional, you're almost having to kind of uh, communicate or bridge the fact that you are not a therapist, and so it's finding that right information. So it's listening to the information and gathering the information that is most relevant and it's kind of like, um, yeah, most valuable for for their time. So that's that's an interesting piece, and I, I also think that silence as a strategy is is such a uh, an interesting thing as well because we don't generally like silence. Silence is something that is challenging. It's uncomfortable. And maybe I'm I'm jumping to conclusions here, but I would almost say that social media and any sort of like our device in general is something to help break that silence in everyday life uh, and give us a bit of give, give us something to hold on to that's not silent. So the fact that you're using silence as a strategy to try and listen and and pull the information out of people is super interesting to me.
1: Yeah, well, it's, I mean, I wouldn't say I'm the best at it. I do try to do it, but uh, it's also hard not to like try to like jump to a conclusion. Someone's telling you a thing that's upsetting them or that's that's problematic, and like you, I want to solve their problems. And yeah. So I want to be like, okay, I heard what I needed to hear. I worked at the answer while you were talking, and like that you have to really resist that urge, I think. Um, Also, like, a, a thing that happens in my job, at least, is, like, people will tell you certain facts. And then you start to, like, form your conclusion. But they didn't know something mattered. And so, like, a big part of our job is, like, asking questions, right? Like, especially when it comes to, like, clients who come to you with, like, some kind of family violence or abuse. Like, they will not either, they will downplay the relevance of that or the severity of it. Or like not mention it and so like if you don't ask certain questions you won't get all the information and so sometimes they'll say xyz you have a conclusion but like you fail to ask a certain question and like you're going totally the wrong way so like silence sometimes it it, like won't quite work i would say in our job and we do have to but i do think it's a good way to sort of get people to tell you their motives and why they want what.
0: Mm-hmm. And going back and, and you mentioned that um, earlier as well, the why, like figuring out the the motivation behind kind of what they're trying to tell you or what what end goal you want to to achieve. So yeah. now law isn't traditionally, we'll call it a creative profession maybe. I think it certainly involves creative problem solving, but I wouldn't, I don't think there's a whole lot of creative outputs, right? You're not like making a collage to present. I was going to say, my art skills are certainly not utilized. (laughs) (laughs) Which is a shame because you are, uh, Jenna, growing up, I remember your closets, you like color coded, (laughs) there was, there were so many beautiful arrays like...
1: everywhere it was an
0: embarrassing display oh, it was it was delightful but anyway so law getting back to coming back on track law sure. isn't traditionally a kind of creative output profession but in your experience like how does listening help you move towards a creative resolution you have to extract
1: the things you need while you're listening to do your problem solving if you don't have all the steps I kind of said this already like you're gonna go toward the wrong resolution um you also like need to listen to like what people want or like why they want it because certainly i'm sure this is true in a lot of areas in family law there's like a lot of like typical arrangements so for instance if you took like parenting as an example there's like a variety of like very very common parenting schedules and so for a lot of us we always default to these schedules. And you're listening to someone and you're like, "Oh, are you the primary caregiver? Are you less involved? Or do you have a very young child versus an older child will dictate schedules things like that, frequency, amount of time you're with each of your parents." But you also have to listen to like what the specifics of each family is because if you miss that, then you're going to pick the wrong schedule or like be pushing the wrong schedule. And so when you like dig in a little bit to find out what people need you will be able to like make custom arrangements that kind of fall outside and like not that that's that creative but like if you don't do a good enough job of finding out what their needs are you're not going to create that you're not going to figure out that one of the spouses has a really weird work schedule even though the other doesn't and so you have to accommodate that but like if you don't ask about that they're just not going to mention it and everyone's going to move forward and you're going to you know find yourself in a difficult place or like people's financial arrangements can be surprisingly complex, or their tax benefits and things. And so you have to get all that to figure out like, what is your actual need? What do we need to fill for you, right? It's just, if you don't listen, you're not gonna approach or go down the right road for it. I will say that this isn't like about creative problem solving necessarily, but I do think sometimes like, and maybe I'm not answering your question directly, but like I, sometimes people, won't listen to me so like there's a secondary problem where like sometimes i'm giving advice and i'm trying to say this is what you should do or this is why you should do this and like that doesn't go through and so like that's another place where i find you sometimes have to be more creative because if you have a client who's like not hearing what you're saying you have to find a new way to say it and like that can be a challenging and more creative part of family law is like okay well you didn't get that that was a really complex problem i explained or like sometimes we're trying to explain to someone tax and they like i've never even looked at our bank accounts right and i'm like here's how the support gets taxed for you like that's a heavy concept to handle and so like you have to find some analogy that is going to work better so that they can take it in because like a lot there's a reason people hire lawyers it's very complicated and they don't need to know everything and sometimes they're not going to hear it the way you say it and so finding like that is like another way that i find I have to be more creative because sometimes I'm like, oh, I'm in it. Of course, this makes sense. I can go down this route and they're going to be able to follow me. And I certainly could not.
0: <laughs> yeah, you said, uh, again, a whole bunch of really interesting pieces. <laughs> no, no, really, truly. And so I'm, I, I want to just uh, kind of highlight two that I I heard there. So one is listening so as not to assume right? So you're kind of understanding what um, what the end goal is. And sometimes when we listen uh, and we're not necessarily asking the right questions, it it all of a sudden, we can start to go down a wrong path because we're assuming certain things based on our, our own lens and our own perception and our own experiences. So asking the right questions and listening certainly go hand in hand. So as we don't assume. So then the other um, piece to that is uh, finding a new way to communicate, for example, a complex problem. So using metaphor or analogies and overcoming kind of this curse of knowledge. We are entrenched. We're we're experts in what we're experts in, but outside of our expertise circle, what we understand in our language and our jargon and our again our experiences and our lenses and all the different pieces of ourselves aren't necessarily the experience of others so it's finding creative ways to communicate key messages and kind of core messages to those who are not experts in our field I love it I'm learning so much Jenna
1: great
0: so I have uh, kind of two more questions for you that's a lie I have three more questions for you but they're kind of all entangled so I'm just gonna I'm gonna throw it out there So I'm going to use for a second the term high-stakes listening. We'll call it that for a second. And I don't know if that is actually what it's called. That's what I'm calling it. To describe kind of the result of what happens when listening is present and when it's not in your type of field. So like my question to you is, how do you help really emotionally charged clients listen to one another? Because I'm sure you're in situations sometimes, maybe often, maybe less often, where you have two parties that are very highly emotionally charged, and they're having to communicate with one another, potentially. So like, what, how do you facilitate that listening? That's the age-old family law question. um, (laughs) Regrettably, the answer is often we just stop doing
1: that, and we will take, uh, because people can't that's not always the case and i do think that there's a bit of a middle ground where it's emotional but people can still do communication with each other like there are scenarios where we will just say you guys can't communicate and we're going to assist until things cool down or maybe that's very very long term but um for people that do like the thing i try to sort of counsel is that you need to remove the emotionality from the discussion, which like very easy to say, very difficult to do. But um, as you can imagine, it sets everyone further back when people engage in like emotional discussions as part of a separation together and we're fighting about X or Y, and then they're all upset about it and they're talking to each other. So a very like common thing we say is you're going to communicate in writing going forward mm sometimes for safety reasons, like to avoid criminal allegations, we just don't actually want people talking to each other, if depending on the level of conflict. And then secondly, we say, you have to assume that every communication that you exchange from now on will be read by a judge. Mm. And so you shouldn't send anything, probably until you've slept on it. Unless it's like very discreet, child focused, there's actually like communication protocols that people sometimes use them a lot. I think it's called, I'm going to get this wrong, but I think it's called BIF, which is like an acronym for like brief information. I'm going to get it wrong. I gonna have to look that up, but it's like an acronym about how you have to like be like very like point first and like you're not really talking about like side issues you're not blaming right like there's a huge desire to blame in my industry and so it's like very human that response and so trying to like coach people out of that is like the biggest part of it because it someone will always say something to trigger the other and you're always trying to like make sure someone can walk back from that and like actually move forward and like arrange a pickup time or like get a support check or transfer a piece of property to one another without like there being a whole slew of complaints
0: between them mm-hmm. it's so interesting to me so i, I uh, am reading a book right now called oh i'm gonna get this wrong as well no i'm not it's called do nothing that's what it's called It's called Do Nothing. And uh, one of the things in this book that is perhaps unrelated to the concept of doing nothing, but one of the concepts in this book is that all of our text-based communication these days, so writing emails and sending text messages and anything that we're doing, typing, social media posts, whatever it is, is almost dehumanizing us in a way because we... Are so, our ears, our human ears are so finely attuned to listening and picking up on the nuance and understanding the emotional undertones of, of the conversation that in writing only in text, we lose some of that humanity. So it's so interesting to me that you're saying in high stakes situations, it's actually preferred and recommended by you as a lawyer to um, almost remove the emotion and get it down in writing but do you think that in writing some of the context can be uh, kind of um, misconstrued or is it just like we want to take all of the emotion out of it and it's just the facts on paper and otherwise like i'm just there's this whole entanglement right of text and of listening and talking and emotion and fact (laughs) it's this big ball of messy stuff any thoughts on that? I, yes, I think
1: the answer is it depends what you're trying to do. So if what the like parties are trying to do is communicate about something that they need to for their family. Like someone left a backpack and we need to get it to the other person for the kid. That is the thing I want in writing and I want it on my Biff formula. Like I want it very brief and I want it's brief, informative, friendly, and firm. There it is. There it is. That's Biff. And anyway, the point is you're just like stripping it of emotion, but that's like to like get by. If you're negotiating, I would never, no, not in writing. Uh, Even between lawyers, it's not that effective in writing because everyone's so positional. And so you're right. You need to be either standing face to face on a phone call at the very minimum being able to pick up on nuance, being able to be like more interactive and creative, right? Like if you're doing it in writing, it's three weeks before you figured out what the other person is actually trying to do. As if that is like such a slow model as compared against a phone call where you can interact and be able to like pivot to a new idea once you find out someone's real issue or motive. So I think they serve different purposes in my world, certainly. Um, Because I do think writing also like lawyers letters is like a very common thing where people get very uh, activated by the fact that the other lawyer is like being aggressive very commonly and so your client gets upset when they see the letter and like we're always moving backwards before we move forwards um because that seems to be like a lot of people want their family lawyer to be an advocate and they think feel that aggression is advocacy and mm. so that is like a, it, that's a, problem in our industry i would
0: say yeah so interesting so it's when to use text when to kind of creatively problem solve listen to the other party almost like a bit of improvisational theater minus the theater part right just kind of coming up with a uh clever solutions on the fly and and understanding that nuance so there's a time and a place yeah for sure and like a very
1: common place you'll see that sort of like creativity of like is in a mediation setting. And so like you have someone who's like trying to find the middle ground, but like you have to do that in like a more dynamic way. And I do agree with you. That, like, the text communication form is not good for that. Like you gotta be able to listen.
0: Mm-hmm. There's
1: something about reading that is just not quite listening.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's I was working with my typography students and we were coming up with one of the things that I challenged them to do was come up with a new punctuation symbol. And a lot of them kind of turned to this, the emotional undercurrent of whatever they were trying to communicate and coming up with a punctuation symbol to kind of place at the beginning of a sentence to understand that this is sarcasm or irony or whatever the case was. Because I think that in, in text, yeah, in, in communication through text, we often miss that. That nuance. It's very interesting. What a funny way to think about it. So we all guard punctuation at the end.
1: Really, mm. like, so you like get to the end of the sentence to find out what's happening.
0: <laughs> right, right. Yeah, don't bury the lead. Just right, right. Put it up.
1: Point first. Point first. That's like one of my favorite things to say. To like, when I work with other lawyers or like junior lawyers will come in. Can I ask you a question? Well, of course. And they'll be like, okay, here's the facts of the case. Blah, 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 blah. And I'll like cut them off. I'm like, whoa, I have no idea what you want to talk about. We have a point first model in this office. I want to hear your question and your general leg overview. And then I will absorb your facts. But right now I can't store that data. Like that's, that's wild.
0: I love it. So you need some context. You need something concrete to, to anchor it in. That's right. I love God it. So my last question for real Z's for you okay. Jenna Beaton is what can creative people who make creative outputs learn from lawyers about listening and creative problem solving like what can we what can we learn from you
1: i would like to say that we approach problem solving in a very much more sterile environment than a typical creative process like Music is a very creative process, often driven a lot by emotion. The law is not. It is a place where we try to strip things of emotion and we try to do things at a level that is about, like, seeking a goal. You can't be insensitive to emotions. Obviously, they, like, some people will want a different result than another person in the exact same scenario because they prioritize finality over getting their best day. And, like, you have to know what you're going to when you're doing something for a client. but. We have a world in which we're trying to like move past the emotion. A very frustrating thing for clients in like court settings is they'll say, My partner did this. It's very upsetting to me because they should have talked to me first. I don't mind the outcome, but I really care that they did this without talking to me. That's like every day you're gonna hear that problem. And perhaps I am getting a little desensitized to the emotional nature of separation, but I will often say, okay, I understand that, that is very frustrating, but we're okay with the resolution, or we're not, and where do we need to go? And so like, we're always kind of jumping past the emotion or trying to in a delicate manner, um, because it very much clouds like the way that you need to apply the law. And the law is not very emotional, a little bit, but not really. And so I would say most of the time we're finding a way to delicately sidestep emotion while doing problems. In a way that I just don't think most creative endeavors want to in the same way. Like the emotion is part of creative problem solving, I feel
0: like. Or creativity, I should say. But what can we take from that? What can we learn from you? I feel like there's something there.
1: Most creative problem solving that you do in law comes from when you ask why the law is why it is. Mm. As people who like work within the law, we're often like feeling constrained by the rules of whatever the law is. And you have to apply them to people's facts, right? Like you're you this is you give people advice based on this is how it is. The most creative type of problem solving or creative work we do in law is to say, why is this rule doing this? Because suddenly in this fact scenario it doesn't work anymore. And so then the creativity comes from when you say, This law doesn't work, or it needs to be changed, or this is wrong. What happens? And like that is the most like creative type of work that we do mm. to say, actually we have to change it, which is like not a huge part of the law but i guess actually every time you go to court you're technically trying to challenge something in some way fundamentally changing like the legislation is a is a much bigger thing but um you are always trying to push the boundary of like how we can apply these like very rigid rules to like unique circumstances and so you do that by saying like why and does this create the just result and if it doesn't like then you do have to push that boundary
0: Hmm. I, I like that I like the I like the idea that to be creative and to solve creative problems, you have to continue asking why so that that status quo is not necessarily the way it needs to be forever. and maybe that even can uh, kind of relate to us in kind of personal growth scenarios like wait, I have done it this way for 10 years. Why am I doing it this way? I need to think bigger. I need to think outside of of my small slice of what I know and what I see I love it
1: and what works for one
0: often doesn't work for someone else right like
1: that's the other part of it is that like you have to resist the urge to fall into categories or to like work within the paradigms that you know and sometimes you have to push them
0: bingo We don't have to fall into specific buckets we need to figure out ways to uh to see beyond the the buckets or the categories thank you jenna it has been a a slice i really appreciate your time and effort and you can send me the the bill in the mail
1: (laughs) can't wait thank you so much diane it was really fun
0: in the same way that jenna asks why the law is the way it is to impact change We can each ask why in personal exchanges to deepen our understanding of our conversational partner. Once we begin to really actively listen to another person, empathy can form as we better understand another person's underlying values and core beliefs. This listening invitation is all about genuinely wanting to better understand your conversational partner. So here's what you need to do. Exchange in a conversation with a friend or family member. One person should act as the conversation starter and the other person as the respondent. The conversation starter will ask, what is the best thing that happened to you today? The respondent will answer this question and at natural breaks throughout the conversation, the conversation starter will ask three additional questions, all of which should start with why. Now the trick to this is doing so without switching focus to yourself. So the respondent will genuinely answer the questions, hopefully, and halfway through, after about four minutes or so, when it makes sense to, switch roles. Here is an example of an exchange that illustrates the power of asking why with my then four-year-old Charlotte. Me, what's the best thing that happened to you today? Charlotte, I got to play with a horse puzzle at school today. Me, that's neat. Why do you like playing with horse puzzles? Charlotte, because horses are like unicorns and I love unicorns. Me, fantastic. Why do you love unicorns? Charlotte, I love them because they have horns and are sparkly. (laughs) So the next time I'm looking to surprise my daughter with something, I now know that it comes down to the importance of horns and glitter.